at your, uh, I'm not sure, did I hear right? Are you supposed to wear your pajamas to that thing? All right, no guys allowed, girls only, to the uh, scarf-making party in your pajamas. I hope that, uh, (laughs) I'm so glad the men's meeting, we don't do that. (laughs) Right, Matt? That'd just be ugly, wouldn't it? (laughs) Hey, I hope you're continuing to do your Bible reading. Uh, If you haven't joined in yet, we're only 10 days in, you can still catch up. Um, Get these in the foyer, the two-year Bible reading plan. I really want, I really desire for everybody to be a part of this. Um, We're going to uh, love reading God's Word together. Uh, It's really powerful. And this morning, uh, you know, different sermons have different purposes, in case you didn't know. Some of the sermons I preach are, are intended to be inspirational. Some are tended to be um, hopefully correctional for all of us to kind of refocus. Some of them are to be thought-provoking. Others of them are to be teaching. And I I do believe it's part of my role as pastor to teach you and me certain aspects of the Word of God and what could be more important than to teach about God's story, about God's Word— how to read the Bible. If we are indeed going to read the Bible through this year, what should or how should we approach the reading of God's Word? And so today, uh, this is going to be more of a teaching than anything on how to read the Word of God. Hopefully it won't be boring. Pray that it won't. Hopefully you'll stay focused in and it will help you as you read God's Word. What am I looking at? How do I read God's Word? How am I not to read God's Word, which is one of the things we should uh, be aware of as well. I've been taught Bible stories my entire life. I'm the son of a pastor. My mom was a very godly woman. I went to church, I think, my mom says I went to church when I was 10 days old, first time. I've been in church ever since, learning Bible stories. Uh, Adam and Eve in the garden, Noah and the ark, both of those stories you read this week, if you're reading the Bible through, Moses and the Exodus, David and Goliath, Daniel and the lion's den, Jonah and the whale, I could just go on and on with Bible stories. But knowing Bible stories and knowing the story of the Bible are two different things. Knowing the story of who God is and what he's doing on the earth and apart from the earth, throughout all of history, are two different things. I believe we, we, as human beings, are all in search of an answer of some kind about life. Do you believe that there is one plan, one story, one narrative that explains why life on earth is like it is? Is there one story that gives meaning and purpose to human existence? One story that towers above all other stories in majesty and beauty? And really, one story from which all other stories are derived? I would say yes. We, for the most part, would say yes. It is the story of God and his progressive revelation of himself to mankind as the God who is there. He is the God who is there. And that's a phrase coined by D.A. Carson in a book by the same title, The God Who Is There. We are, as a people, dependent on who God is. God created us. This is very important. If you miss a lot of the other stuff I say this morning, please focus on this. God created us. We did not create God. Now, this is a critical strain of thought. And this strain of thought was pretty well accepted by everyone who ever lived up until about 1600. Everything was focused on the fact that things came from God. But in the 1600s, Enlightenment, I'm not going to get into all the I think, therefore, I am philosophies of uh, Descartes and, and all the others, Descartes and all the others, but suddenly things shifted from being God-centered and being flowing from him to being man-centered and flowing back upwards. 
In other words, we live in an age and have for the last really 500 years where things centered upon us. This is about me. This is about my happiness, my fulfillment, my destiny, my life. I think, therefore, I am became the center of how we interpret everything around us. Before the 1600s, this was not true. Everything stemmed from God. It flowed from him. It is his purpose, his design, his story. We believe in what would be called, however, a Christian biblical worldview. How we view everything around us. And there there are different ways to view the world. Ultimately, there are two, I believe. One is God-centered and one is man-centered. We're on, we are on a journey through life. And like any journey, there's a path to be followed. A journey, by definition, has a starting point and a destination and a path. It's the means by which we get from here to there. Now, traveling has dramatically changed over, really, the last hundred years. I mean, think about it. The greatest um, man-made in I'm trying to think of the right word. I saw this on television a couple of years ago. The greatest creation of man in the last hundred years is the interstate highway system. Believe it or not, it changed everything according to experts. How to, how to get produce from here to there, how, how we travel. And that's just over the last hundred years. I mean, over the last 10 or 15 years, 20 years tops, We now know how to get from here to there because we all carry in our hands a device that has GPS mapping on it. It it is hard to get lost nowadays. Um, Last week I was going down to Orange Beach and uh, the friend I was going to meet just sent me a pin drop. He said, here's where I am. Boom. He sent me a drop. My phone picked it up. I can go from here to there. I even have a watch that I run with that tells me where I ran, as I ran. This is my run from uh, Tuesday morning. Seven-mile run, it gives me my pace. Don't look at that. I'm slowing down as I get older. It gives me my pace. But on the bottom, the green is like the elevation changes, um, the pace at every second that I'm running. It's just a watch, and I go back. I don't even have to do anything. I just throw it on my desk. The computer senses it's there, downloads all the information from my watch, and... The website has all the information over the last really five-plus years that I've run. Every path that I've run, every trail that I've taken, every pace, as well as biking and swimming. I mean, technology is just, it's crazy. But when it comes to our spiritual journey, our journey with God, how do we keep track and progress and know if we're on the right trail. Because really, it's much more important where I am with God than where I am physically right now. Ultimately, that's going to achieve the destiny that God has in his plan. In Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, hundreds of years, excuse me, hundreds of years before Christ ever came said this, and a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. The unclean will not journey on it. It will be for those who walk in that way. Wicked fools will not go about on it. Now, in Isaiah's time, a highway is not like what we think of as a highway, right? I mean, we're talking hundreds of years before Christ. Uh, A highway to him was literally a highway, a way that was above every other way, a way that kind of got you up and above the desert and the stuff and the, and the, so that you could jump on this highway that kept you on track and moving. And he sees this sort of elevated road, so to speak, God's way, as a way that the holy, those who have been set apart, will travel on. And he's looking forward, really, not to what is there with him now, but the time of Christ where he's saying there's going to be this way. That is God's way, that we can all journey together. And I believe that if we're going to be on this journey, then we need to know the power of God's story. 
God has revealed himself, his ways, his purposes, his plans, in his word and in the person of Jesus Christ. And he gives us the person of the Holy Spirit to help us understand his word in Jesus and his word as revealed in his story. So we're on this Bible reading plan where we're going to read the Bible through together this year. And it says in 2 Timothy that we need to do our best to present ourselves to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. In that, I believe that he's saying there's a correct and an incorrect way to handle God's word. And if we're not careful, we can be very careless with the word of God. We can be very man-centered. We can be, we can be very enlightenment-oriented. Are you with me? In handling the word of God. In other words, the Bible is God's story. It's not your story. It's a story of him and his progressive revelation about who we are. So this morning, I want to give us some broad spectrums, truths about how to handle the Word of God as we read God's story together. It's been fascinating, even in my own house, you know, I know we've read God's Word together before, but suddenly uh, some of my children are reaching an age where they're questioning, hey, where did these wives of Cain's come from? And who are these Nephilim people that he, the Nephilim were on the, I mean, questions that you start to read and you're like, wait a minute, where did all this, how do we handle God's word? So that we don't get bogged down in certain things, but we do honestly try to handle it as workmen who don't need to be ashamed, correctly handle the word of God. So I want to use as an illustration this morning, and by the way, this sermon is, um, uh, an adjustment and a slight repeat of one I did seven years ago. So if you're here seven years ago, you've probably forgotten I did this, so it's no big deal. I probably could have not even told you, and you would have been fine. But when we did the design, the grand design series, uh, there was an introduction that I did to that that is similar to this. I've readjusted it in some ways, but just in case you were wondering. But many people, many people see the Word of God as, and have used the illustration of a cathedral. Uh, to understand and to look at God's Word. The design of scriptures is some way similar to the design of a cathedral. You'll notice that this is just a, a typical cathedral. It's in the shape of a cross. It has all these different parts, chapels, hallways, naves, you know, all this other uh, portions of the cathedral, works of art, tapestry, tombs, etc., a couple of years ago, Adam was studying uh, abroad for a semester in Spain, and Kathy and I went over and saw him, and we traveled through, through Spain, and we ended up in Barcelona, and in Barcelona is one of the most spectacular places, buildings I've ever, I've ever visited. It is called Sagrada Familia, and Sagrada Familia is actually a basilica. Now, a basilica differs from a cathedral, for those of you who didn't know, only in this aspect. A cathedral is, uh, you, you have to have what is considered the seat of a bishop. In other words, not a seat, but there is a seat, but it's not really the seat. It's where the bishop headquarters out of in the Catholic Church. So for a place to be called a cathedral, it has to be the seat or headquarters of a bishop. So Grata Familia is a basilica because it doesn't, but it's, the same thing in design. And it's a modern basilica or cathedral in that it was started in 1882 and it's still being built. It's supposedly going to be uh, completed in 19, uh, excuse me, 2026. Uh, Anthony Gaudi is a famous Catalan architect. Um, that's Spanish uh, section of Spain. A famous architect who originally designed Sagrada Familia. And some of you are like, what was he talking about? It, it, he's a famous architect, and he died in 1926. So on the 100th anniversary of his death, it's supposed to be completed. And it's one of the most spectacular buildings you can, you can ever see. I think it's the most beautiful place in all of Spain. And you can see it. It, it, it dominates the skyline. If you look over the, the two white buildings, you can see it sort of in the distance. 
It's, it's really still being built. Right now, I think it has like eight, maybe ten spires. It's supposed to have 18 by the time it's completed, which I think are the, the 12 apostles, the four gospel evangelists, Mary and Jesus. That may be total 18, something like that. And so they're still in the process of building it. This is the view from afar. And this is the way many people look at the Word of God. They view it from a distance. And so first, I want to talk about the view from afar. The view from afar. Jesus replied to the Pharisees, by the way, who were experts in the handling of the law and the Old Testament. And he said this, you're in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. You see, they knew the details, but they didn't know the the picture of it. They were interpreting it through their own lens rather than how God intended for it to be interpreted. I want to give you some wrong ways to look at the Word of God, some misconceptions, as it were, about the Word of God. Inadequate views, maybe, would be a better way to put it. So the first is this, as simply a random collection of sacred writings that we use for devotional purposes. In other words, to see it all as kind of a collection of all these 66 books of the Bible from different periods and places, and it's just a collection of sacred writings with no grand story, no grand design, no purpose, that is more like um, either random predictions or a good luck charm. Some is prophetic. There's some predictions that are true and yet to have been fulfilled, but yet to come true. Some that we have to figure out. Listen, if you all you do is view the Bible like you're reading in Genesis and Matthew as a random collection of either historical or prophetic or sacred writings, then you have an inadequate view of the Bible that is going to color how you read the various portions. Another inadequate view is if it's two distinct books with two distinct gods. In other words, there's the Old Testament God who's mean, who's judgmental, who's legalistic, and then there's the New Testament God who's loving and nice and soft and user-friendly. Who gives us Jesus, and then in turn gives us what we want. Again, it's inadequate. God is the same You can say it with me. Yesterday, today, and forever. It's a progressive revelation of himself. In other words, God is revealing himself, but it's the same God. And at different periods, man got a view of God that was not quite complete. But as time goes along, we'll see that Jesus is the ultimate and complete revelation of who God is. I'm going to move more quickly through these. As simply a collection of moralistic stories and teachings which help us to live a good life. Bible stories. Oh, Adam and Eve, they were good, but then they did this. Don't be like Adam and Eve. David, David was, he was really, you want to live a life like David, who was really faithful and stood up to Goliath. And when the giants come, no, you don't want your kids to be like David, people. David also committed adultery, killed a man. Um, I mean, really. Do you understand my point? We teach Bible stories like they're moralistic stories. And there are morals that are in the stories that we also want to understand. But the the Bible is so much more than a collection of moralistic stories and teachings that will help us live a good life. Also, if you read the Bible as simply a system of rules and regulations which we're to live by. Sort of like it's your Ford Explorer's owner's manual. And you take the owner manual out and you read it to find out what's wrong with the car. You fix the car, you get it going. And if you have trouble, you go find a guy who knows the owner's manual better than you so that he can fix your car. Listen, you'll end up with just a legalistic view of the Bible if this is the only way you read the Bible. And what we've learned is that the law, legalism kills us because then it's about what we do. Oh, here's what God says to do and not do. Here's what I do. If I do this, God is happy with me. If I don't do this, God is mad at me. You understand the point? Um, Another inadequate view is is if the Bible is primarily about Israel. 
Uh, Israel's definitely a part of the story, but Israel is not the focus of the story of the Bible. They are a subplot. If you fall in this ditch, all your attention is going to be thinking about ancient Israel and future Israel. And you'll give much more time, money, and prayer to something that is not the main point of the story. I could go on here. I'm not going to, but just kind of write that down and meditate on it for a little bit. And finally, that the Bible, if you read it as if it was written to you, this is sometimes called Illuminism, by the way, this ditch. This is reading the Bible as if every verse and promise were directed toward me. I'm going to be careful here. Of course the Bible has relevance for you in all of it. But there's a bigger purpose. I am not the main character of the story. We're always getting confused thinking that Scripture is mainly about what we're supposed to do. But here's what I want to say, and I'm trying to get this point. I'm kind of going to uncover the hand early. The story of Scripture is all about God. It is about him, his story. And if we don't get that from afar, that we see that this story is about him, then any other way we view the Bible is going to lead us to an inadequate and improper view of the way we read it. All right. Give you another couple of slides of uh, Sagrada Familia. This is the view from above. The view from above. And here actually is the floor plan of Sagrada Familia, which you can see, if you can see the slides well, is very similar to the floor plan of the other cathedral that I gave you. Most cathedrals are shaped in the form of some sort of Latin cross, as is Sagrada Familia, even though it's a very, very modern basilica. So the second point is this. We need to get a view from above. A view from above. In reading God's word from beginning to end, you've got to look at the context, the types of literature, how to read the word, and ultimately, ultimately, and listen, you can write this down, how Jesus is on every page. He, Jesus, is the interpretive key in the reading of Scripture. He's to understand the story of God. Now, for some of you, you may be thinking, wait, wait a minute. You're really putting some stuff in that Old Testament that I would contend that Jesus is on every page of the Bible. Ultimately, it's about him. The grand scope and sweeping nature of the story is still unfolding, and we have a part to play. But it takes on a new dimension and a new meaning when we have the right interpretive key. I want to start with four basic assumptions. These are from N.T. Wright. The first is this. The Bible is God's story, the true story of the world. The Bible explains why the world is the way it is. In a way that no other belief system or philosophy or world religion can. Some of you are uh, maybe taking notes right now and you're writing so fast you're not listening. If you want to, I'll send you the notes on this sermon. If you want to just listen, just let me know. I'll send you the manuscript. If you want to just kind of focus in on the, what I'm saying so you don't get caught up. There's not going to be a test on this after class this morning. But if you want to know these points, just let me know and I'll, I'll get them to you. The other point is this. The Bible is the record of God's self-disclosure, his unfolding revelation progressive in nature. Now, I know that's a mouthful, but it's basically saying God reveals himself in many different ways, over time to man. I mean, if God had just dumped everything on man about who he is and what he's doing in one fell swoop, you know, it's that old illustration about trying to get water out of a fire hydrant. We would not be able to to take it all in. But instead, over history and over time, he's progressively revealed himself to us, ultimately revealed himself to us, Paul says, Jesus says, John says, Peter says, in the person of Jesus Christ. God's ultimate and complete revelation of himself is found in Jesus. That's why Jesus is the interpretive key to help us understand the scripture. In Exodus 7, verses 18 through 13, says this. You remember that uh, Moses goes down to help get the 
the Israelites free from the uh, Egyptians. And Moses and Aaron go into Pharaoh. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle, then say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, and it will become a snake. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a snake. Pharaoh then summoned wise men and sorcerers, and the Egyptian Egyptian magicians also did the same things by their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff, and it became a snake, but Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Here's the final point on the view from above. It's this. The design of God is the ultimate plan. God's plan, God's story is the story that swallows up every other design and story. The deceiver, Satan, we believe that there is a real being uh, called Satan whose goal is to deceive us. And he has created many alternative plans, many alternative things. Some of them have just a kernel of the truth of God's plan woven into it, God's story, so we think, oh, this is true, and then we swallow the, the rest of it. But ultimately, God's plan, God's design, swallows up every other plan. Sometimes God's story is revealed in types of literature like Genesis and Exodus, historical literature. Sometimes the legal literature of Leviticus or Deuteronomy reveals God's story. Sometimes the wisdom literature of Solomon, like the Proverbs, reveal God's story. Sometimes in prophetic literature, like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, you see the story of God. If you don't understand the prophetic literature is pointing toward Jesus Christ, then you'll never understand the book of Hosea. Why did God tell this prophet, go get a wife who's a prostitute? Go keep buying her back. Go have children buy her. Why does, when uh, we read in Romans, and we read it the other night, the passage that says, once you were a people, but once you were not a people, but now you are a people, that that is a direct quote from the book of Hosea. I mean, we understand. We've got to get a hold of the truth of God from above that, In the Gospels, we see Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We see the story of Christ. In the history of the early church, we see who God is revealed to mankind, his story. In the letters of Paul and Peter and John. We lose focus when we start to look at God's word. And rather than saying, there's a design here, there's a story here, there's a purpose here, we start letting other things come in. Do you remember, um, do you remember the movie City Slickers? With, um, yeah, Jack Palance. And, and they ask him, hey, what's the secret to life? And he says, one thing, one thing. And they say, well, what is that one thing? That's what you've got to figure out. You've got to figure out the one thing. I, people, I, I know you, some of you are saying, I, I think he's, he's stretching just a little bit. Listen to the words of Jesus. These are the words of Christ after he was crucified, resurrected. He meets a couple of guys on the road to a place called Emmaus, and they start talking And here's how things go. He said to them, Jesus, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. By the way, they're telling Jesus before this what has occurred in Jerusalem. They're like, hey, didn't you hear? Didn't you hear what happened? And they're telling him all the stuff. And he says, did not the Christ have to suffer these things and enter his glory? Here's the phrase I want you to see. And beginning with Moses and all the scriptures, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. He unfolds the scriptures, which to them was the Old Testament, and how all of it referred to himself. It's all about him. Then in verses 44 and 45, 
This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. He's covering all the types of literature. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He's saying to them, unless you see me here, you'll never really understand. What a Bible lesson that would be, wouldn't it? Wouldn't you like to be, open my mind. You know what? Here's the truth. You've been given the spirit of truth who will help you open your minds to see the scriptures. Part of the reason we can't see the scriptures is because of those misconceptions. We keep overlaying our own personal stuff on it, our own junk from the past, or we don't have the interpretive key. If you'll, through the person of the Holy Spirit, lay the interpretive key of Jesus on the scriptures, the spirit of God will uncover the word of God for you. The Bible, it's made up of 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. It's written over a 1,500-year span, three different continents by more than 40 different authors, fishermen, poets, peasants, kings, shepherds, farmers, philosophers. It's written from places like dungeons and palaces and deserted islands. It was written in three different languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic, spanning over 40 generations, and yet... There's one story, one grand story being woven through the word of God. Jesus is the message. Jesus is the story. Jesus is the gospel. Jesus is the interpretive key. Paul says in Colossians that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. In Ephesians, Paul says all things will be summed up in Jesus. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Jesus is the last Adam. The view from above has to do with Jesus. Last spring, I had a friend who went to Sagrada Familia. I went to Barcelona. And so I said to him, Hey, you got to go see this. I, can't, I keep calling it the cathedral, though technically it's not. you got to go see, go see this cathedral. It, it's just incredible. He gets back from Barcelona. I'm talking to him. Did you go to Sagrada Familia? Yes, it was spectacular. I loved it. It was just, and I'm like, did you, did you see where the Lord's Prayer was on the wall? Did you see the um, stained glass windows and He said to me, well, I went to Sagrada Familia. I just didn't go in Sagrada Familia. And I'm like, you got to go back. (laughs) You got to go back. It's it's one thing to view something from afar or from above or from outside. It's another thing to get into it and to see it. I mean, it is spectacular. I'm a terrible photographer. But you can see from these pictures just the majesty of it. It's so symbolic and just the way the light comes through the windows. And and I'm not even getting into all the intricate details. And just to prove that it's me taking the picture, there's Kathy and Adam uh, in Sagrada Familia. It is, for me, honestly, it was a spiritual experience. I met God in a building because of the way it was designed and the beauty of the the building. We need to get inside the Word of God. I want to tell you, this is my fear. One of the reasons we're reading the Bible through this year is because even in a church like ours, as awesome as our church is, my fear is that most of us either have a view from afar or a view from above, and the only time we get inside of it is during this 45 minutes on Sunday morning. I, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to encourage your children to read God's Word. Get inside of it. Get into it. Start digging around. And when those hard questions come, like where did those wives come from? Go on that journey together. Help dig around. Now, keep the misconceptions, the understandings, get that overlay of Jesus on things, but 
really dig into God's word. Don't be afraid of it. Don't be afraid to say, oh, you know, I don't have the answers. People, I don't have the answers. I mean, ultimately, I can't tell you where those women came from. No one can. We don't know. We got theories. Who are the Nephilim in Genesis 3 or 4? I mean, I got, we got theories, but we really don't know. Is it okay to say we don't know? If God wanted us to know, what? He'd have told us. He'd have told us. I'm not saying don't, don't delve into, but don't be afraid of. All Scripture, including that Nephilim thing, all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the person, man of God, may be adequately equipped for every good work. Listen, when you get inside, your view is going to be different depending on what direction you look, right? So if you're in a cathedral like Sagrada Familia, you saw just from the pictures I showed you, if you're looking up, you got a one view. If you're looking at the windows, or looking at one of the plaques, or looking at the altar, or looking down the, the, the aisle, whatever it's called. You, you get different views. Depending on which door you come, from, come in from, you'll get different view. There are two main doors at Sagrada Familia uh, at this point. There's going to be a third, but the first is the passion door. Now, you can't see it in detail here, but above the door is the crucifixion, the passion. And the figures that adorn on either side have to do with the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. When you come in this door, you get one view. And even this side of the building looks totally different. It's more a modern kind of looking. It's kind of stark in the way that it looks. The other side of the building, you can see, is really ornate. This is the nativity side. This is the birth of Christ. Here's me and Adam standing outside the birth of Christ. And so you can see, and I I don't even capture just a small part of the intricate details that are written. It is a totally different view. And they're still building the other view, which will be the glory of Christ, the return, the end of time, the final judgment that's being built. And depending on which door you go in, you're going to get a totally different view. If you enter the Bible through Proverbs, you're going to get a different view than you do if you go through Genesis, or a different view than if you go through Romans. It's all the same, but it's going to give you a different perspective and view on who God is. Don't limit your view of God to the God of what you see in Proverbs, right? You with me? You need to really go through all of it and take it apart and see who God is. In Abraham, let me just give you some highlights. In Abraham, Jesus is the seed that will ultimately bring blessing where Adam's sin brought curses. In Israel, Jesus is the ultimate son of God through whom he will do his final work. In David, Jesus is the king who will reign over God's kingdom on earth. In Solomon, Jesus is the wisdom of God for all the people of God. In the prophets, Jesus is the restoration of his people. In Matthew, even the Gospels have different perspectives of who Jesus and what his purpose was. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promise in Matthew, a lot of Old Testament prophecies. In Mark, Jesus is the present king who leads the world into his glorious kingdom. In Luke, Jesus is the servant who will save creation. In John, Jesus is the first and final word of God. He is the word made flesh. In Romans, Jesus is our righteousness. I love the book of Romans. In Hebrews, we just studied Hebrews, Jesus is superior to the old covenant, which has become obsolete and is fading away. In 1 John, which we just read as well, Jesus is the love of God. In Revelation, Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the Lion of Judah, of the tribe of Judah, the Morning Star, the Lamb who was slain from the foundations of the earth and the consummation of all the purposes of God. Jesus, you see. But where you look, you'll get a different view. You know, when you read a book, I hope you still read. But you get plots and subplots and 
When I was in high school, uh, my senior high school, I read uh, as an assignment War and Peace. Have you ever read War and Peace? Um, Tolstoy's great masterpiece, War and Peace. I mean, it, it's thick. It's thick. And there are so many subplots. I mean, when I was reading the book, and they're all Russian names. And, you know, all the Russian names in Tolstoy, they look identical. You know, they'll have like one letter change. And I had to have a, like a guide sitting next to the book because the next chapter I'm like, who, I don't even know who we're talking about anymore. So I'd have to read, oh, that's so-and-so. And they changed their name to Lord Count so-and-so. And, you know, and there's a backdrop, which is Napoleon's invasion of Russia. But there is a plot to the story. And if you don't, if you get so bogged down in the subplots of something, you lose sight of the big, that it's all related to the big picture. As you read God's word, I want to encourage you to see Jesus woven in the tapestry, that progressive revelation of God. As you, you're about to read, for instance, Abraham, just starting Abraham in Genesis. If you're up with us, you will see that the promises to Abraham, the covenant given to Abraham, all really refer to Jesus. You think they refer to the nation of Israel and the descendants of Abraham, but you would be mistaken. They're just a part of the picture that is going to come in the revelation that all nations of the earth are going to be blessed through the seed of Abraham, which is ultimately not the nation of Israel, but Jesus himself. Are you with me? In Isaiah 55, and I'm just going to read this passage to you, and I want you to see how what I've been talking about comes to pass. Isaiah says this, Come, all of you who are thirsty, come to the waters who have no money. Come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest affair. Come and be satisfied. Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus is that gift that money cannot buy. He said, if any among you is thirsty, do what? Let him come to me and drink. Isaiah is prophesying, even here, that says, come and be satisfied. Where? In Jesus. Because through Jesus, we have relationship to God. Give ear and come to me. Hear me that your soul may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Seek him. This covenant made to David is not about the nation of Israel. It is about the ultimate covenant that a king is coming, the king of kings and lord of lords. Long passage, but this is the one about the word of God. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my Ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. I don't think there's a passage that could be clearer that God is the center of things. His word proceeds out of his mouth and will return for what purpose? His purpose. The word in the scripture and ultimately the word made flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. Closes by saying, you'll go out in joy, be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills will burst into song before you. And all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush, 
will grow the pine tree. Instead of briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign which will not be destroyed. How do you want real joy in your life? I mean, don't we want that purpose, meaning, joy? I would say come to him and drink. Find him and be certain. Return to the Lord and allow him to change you. In turn, go out in joy and peace. The word of God, as we get into it this year, is going to have, it's not going to return void. Hey, people, in faith, do you believe it's not going to return void? In other words, if you get into it, you look at it, you read it, you let it permeate your heart and your life, it will accomplish God's purpose. If you haven't heard anything else, Listen to this. As you do, remember, Jesus is in the interpretive key. This is about God, not you. Keep Jesus in the forefront. Allow the person of the Holy Spirit to minister life and truth and uncover God's word as you dig deep in God's word together. Lord, we pray this morning that we will be encouraged to look at your word together. That we as a body will read the word of God, that we'll study the word of God, that we'll, we, we don't want to be workmen who are ashamed because we're lazy. But at the same time, Lord, we understand this is totally and completely dependent upon you. So Lord, I pray for every person here. I pray for those who know Jesus, but haven't been delving into your word. Lord, I pray that you would help us get into your word and see the truth there and grab hold of the joy. Lord, for those who don't know Jesus, again, I pray, Spirit of God, draw them to the name of Christ. That indeed, their lives will be changed forever. Lord, I pray that right now, as we come to a time where we pray for one another, that Spirit of God, you'd be present in this place. Move among us, encourage us, inspire in us. Breathe into us your plans, your purposes, your life. We believe you're going to do great things in these moments ahead. Oh, God, move among us. Could I have our ministry teams just come and spread across the front? You may be here this morning and need prayer. Prayer for healing, prayer for direction. Prayer that says, you know what? I need to return to the Lord. I, I know the Lord, or maybe I don't know the Lord, but I need to either come to the Lord or return to Him. And I want to just have someone pray with me to have this sealed in my life. Maybe you just want to tell someone, look, I want to get into God's Word this year. Would you pray with me that I'll be disciplined and um, God will help me? Maybe you're here and you just need the lifting of a burden. Maybe there's something weighing on you, a habit or some sort of even sin that you would like to come to someone and say, hey, would you just pray for me? I really want to be free from this this year. I really desire God's plan and purpose to be accomplished in my life this year. Whatever that might be, stand up with me. Mitch is going to lead us in a song, and as he does, if you need prayer, just come to one of these teams. Don't take this time lightly. I want to encourage you, if you feel something, someone spurring you to receive prayer, I believe that's God moving you forward. And so just receive what God has for you in these moments ahead. If you need prayer, just move right now. Mitch, lead us. There's a calm that covers me It's a place of healing, it's a place where I find
It's a place of healing. It's a place I live in Oh, man. 